The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about our changing understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder and how we define the trauma that can trigger it. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Alexi Morozov, an assistant professor at the Virginia Tech Karelian Research Institute. He and his lab are interested in neuronal substrates responsible for transmission of social signals of distress and use mouse models to help determine how these circuits become altered in pathological conditions, including post-traumatic stress disorder. Alexi, welcome to Science for the People. Great. Uh, great to hear from you. Uh, good morning. So before we get started talking about the specific study here, um, can you maybe give us a little introduction to what you and your lab do and what interests you? So we are interested in how psychological trauma causes post-traumatic stress disorder. And the interest, uh, our specific interest in psychological trauma is that many previous studies focus on physical trauma where people experience real physical pain and physical distress and then develop PTSD. But in reality, in our uh, regular life, we very, very often encounter a psychological trauma where there is no physical pain or no physical distress. And such models are much more rare, and we are trying to model it in animal studies where we take a mouse and we expose a mouse to another mouse which is receiving electrical food shock. So our subjects do not, do not experience any physical pain or any physical distress, but they undergo some changes in their brain. And we study how those changes happen and what those changes are. So you guys are specifically interested in what happens when we witness pain or trauma from somebody else and how that affects us as a witness. Exactly. That's, that's our exact model. But uh, the interpretation of this model and any results coming from it can be uh, further applied to situations when we learn, for example, about our relatives being sick or watch our friends die or watch our friends being hurt. So all those situations where we know that something bad is happening to somebody else, not necessarily to us. And that's where we want to understand how our brain uh, responds and changes. So you guys specifically focus on mouse models. And, and I'm curious, why use mouse models for something like this? So such studies uh, really cannot be done in humans because we cannot uh, subject humans to pain and suffering. Uh, we can do such experiments in animals, of course, with certain uh, restrictions, and we get all various approvals from uh, animal care committees, which uh, make sure that we don't do too much uh, bad to the animals. But basically, we have many limitations to work in humans. Also, in humans, we cannot invade into the brain. We cannot cut brain open, and we cannot take measures from the brain uh, same way as we can do in the animals. So in a lot of ways, uh, a mouse model really allows you to go a lot farther with the research and be a lot more specific, I guess? Exactly, yeah. In a mouse model, we can ask very specific questions. For example, we can ask how a particular type of cells in the brain do their job. For example, we can introduce genetic mutations in the mouse, which allow us to specifically visualize or monitor activity or manipulate activity of specific parts of the brain. Of course, we cannot manipulate human brain like this because we cannot invade, put viruses, put 
uh, genetic mutations in, in the human brain. It's simply uh, prohibited by any, any rules of human society. So uh, how similar are mouse brains and human brains? I mean, what makes them good models? Unfortunately, they are still quite different, but there are so many uh, things in common. For example, uh, the center of the brain, which is responsible for fear, which is called the amygdala, is almost identical between human and mice because this is a very ancient structure and it is responsible for helps our survival because it protects us from many, many danger. So that's why it's, it's a very common among many, many organisms. And interestingly, many psychiatric disorders uh, involve disruption of our perception of fear and our learning of fear and our fear memories. That's why we are focusing on parts of the brain which are very, very similar between those very uh, far-related organisms. So what about the limitations of mouse models? Obviously, the brain of a mouse is very different from the brain of, of a human being. So we can only take the conclusions from a study on a mouse model so far, right? Exactly. We can only uh, have limited uh, interpretation of our findings. Uh, we cannot uh, measure many things which we can measure in humans' brain. And of course, human behavior is much more rich and sophisticated than behavior of any animal. Uh, therefore, we cannot, uh, we cannot really study behaviors which are very specific to a human. Uh, we have to focus on behavior which are shared between those species. But once we study those common behaviors, or we can call them behavioral traits, we can find commonalities which inform us about what is happening in the human brain. So uh, after studies like yours on mouse models, I mean, what's the next step? Is it usually more research on mice? Is it research on a different animal, maybe um, maybe chimps or apes? I mean, is it studies with humans to try and figure out what, if what we're seeing in mice is relevant to how human brains work? Because I can see how it's easy to look at studies on mice in isolation and kind of think, well, it's on mice. It doesn't really tell us anything. Um, but the power of science is in a lot of these kind of small steps that add up to create new understanding. So if this if this study and studies like it are kind of a, a step or a branch, then, then what do the next steps or branches look like? Okay, so the next steps um, usually is taking, uh, say if you want to, so we, let's talk about next steps in two ways. One kind of next steps is to further understand how mouse brain works. So in other words, once we learn something from our current experiments, we can always go a step further. For example, we learn about certain group of neurons in the brain. Then we will ask next question, what about neurons that connect to those neurons and so forth? So we can uh, slowly move along uh, brain connections in the mouse brain and understand more and more what is happening there. And this is most likely what my laboratory is going to do. But there is also another path, so-called path of translation, when we translate our knowledge that we obtain in the mouse brain to the human studies. And there are another here, there are a couple other branches here. One is a technical branch. When we study mouse brain, we try to manipulate it or we, we try to take certain measures from it. And while we are doing it, we are developing techniques which allow us to take such measures. For example, we can record from the brain and record certain uh, uh, potentials, for example, electrical fields, how they change. And once we learn from a mouse that certain condition, for example, uh, psychological trauma, changes, for example, oscillations in the brain. Then we can make a prediction that perhaps such oscillations have something to do with function of human brain also. 
and taking this knowledge, we can, uh, researchers who study on humans, they can take this knowledge and they can connect electrodes to the skull and they can measure activity of human brain under conditions which would mimic our experimental conditions. So in other words, we provide the knowledge to apply to future human studies, which someone else will, will take. So that's, that's how it could be translated about methodology. And uh, second, if we learn basic functions, say if we identify part of the brain, which say was activated by psychological trauma or suppressed by psychological trauma, then uh, human researchers who do uh, MRI imaging of a human brain, they can uh, focus on that particular area and then, then, then they can apply their own models to study how this area behaves in, in their system. So in other words, just a flow of information which help uh, people working at a different levels. If we provide new information, the people who work on humans, they can take it and try applying it in their model. So would it be fair to say that one of the the things that good research on mouse models does is allow us to ask better questions about the human brain and also give us a better idea of how to create better experiments for research on human brains? Exactly. It, it, uh, both, both are correct. <laughs> Your, both suggestions are quite correct. Uh, so first we can ask new questions about function of a human brain. For example, if we found a change in certain neurochemicals in the mouse brain, we can ask, are those neurochemicals also changing in the human brain in the same conditions? And there are methods to measure neurochemicals without invading into the brain, for example, by imaging techniques, by PET imaging techniques. Uh, so those can be directly translated. And the second is, uh, as, as I, I'm now a little bit repeating what I already said, the methodologies that we develop in mice. We cannot initially develop it using human brain, but once we know, for example, that certain type of oscillatory activity can be measured or a certain type of stimulation of the brain can cause some changes, uh, those can be applied in humans because uh, in humans also there are techniques like deep brain stimulation or uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation where uh, researchers are trying to modify brain activity by external stimuli and those can be information for those studies can be taken from the mouse or rodent experiments. Okay, so let's look at one specific study that uh, your lab put out recently, which looked at how mice are influenced by witnessing other mice go through stressful experience experiences. Could you uh, maybe start by giving us just the abstract or the kind of elevator pitch of what this study was about? Okay, so we have actually two published studies uh, one study was published about a year ago, and another one was very recent. So uh, to understand our recent study, it is necessary to say a few words about the very first one. So in the very first study, we found that if, we, if an animal is exposed to a partner, a sibling, who is receiving electrical food shocks, then later on, uh, this particular mouse, the witness of somebody being shocked, uh, will acquire new properties. So he will be able to learn aversive experience much better than before. Uh, so specifically what happens is we let him watch uh, the partner being shocked, and on the next day we put him through a procedure which is called uh, inhibitory avoidance or passive avoidance training. In that procedure, animal has to learn that he should not go to a place where he will be otherwise receiving electrical food shock and himself. And what we found that uh, animal who watched somebody being shocked late, uh, previously, he learns that second task much better than the animal who did not have an uh, uh, observing experience. So then our next question was, what happened in the brain to 
explain such changes. And, and that's where our uh, second study come up. And in the second study, we were looking in the area of the brain, which is called the prefrontal cortex. This is the area which is responsible for making decisions. Uh, and the prefrontal cortex is responsible for making decisions both in humans and mice, pretty much in every uh, vertebrate animal. And we ask a simple question, are there any changes in how uh, neuronal signals are received by the prefrontal cortex after animal had an experience of watching somebody being shocked? And uh, signals which arrive in prefrontal cortex are usually controlled by so-called inhibitory interneurons. In the brain, there are two types of two major types of neurons: excitatory neurons and inhibitory neurons. So, in excitatory neurons, transmit information from one place to the next, primitively speaking. But inhibitory neurons, they work as a gate. They will uh, prevent or suppress or slow down uh, transmission of uh, excitatory signals. And there is a balance. And there are different types of interneurons. Some interneurons control flow of information at certain places. Uh, in the brain, other interneurons control flow of information elsewhere. And what we found in the study that the two types of interneurons which control flow of information in different layers of the prefrontal cortex undergo opposing changes. So we found that a group of interneurons which are called parvalbumin positive interneurons become less active uh, after animal observed fear. Whereas another group of interneurons, which are called somatostatin interneurons, they become more active. And interestingly, the somatostatin interneurons control flow of information in the upper layer of the prefrontal cortex. That's the place where information from sensory areas of cortex comes. So it's more like sensory information or higher order processed information about uh, all sorts of modalities. Uh, whereas the parvalbumin-positive interneurons control flow of information from deeper layers of the brain, like the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain. So that information uh, has influence on prefrontal cortex from the side of our basic instincts, like fear, for example. Mm -hmm. And what our study showed is that by shifting this balance, potentially we are shifting flow of sensory high-order information versus flow of information about fear by giving preference to the information about fear. Uh, so it might be a very long explanation, but if we take it further to human studies, uh, there is an implication which uh, the immediate question which come up, is it going to change connectivity between prefrontal cortex and area which control fear versus prefrontal cortex and area which provide us higher order sensory information? So let and me... predict oh, that it will. So let me make sure that I understand. Okay. So I think, I think what you're saying, and obviously this is going to be vastly simplified, but let me, let me, let me find out if the gist is correct here, is that what you found is that there's a, something in the brain that changes that makes it easier or more preferential for those kind of instinctual fear feelings to get through and sort of control us than, uh, the sort of higher order, I guess, quote-unquote, rational, cognitive, yeah, that kind of information to yes. sort of control us yes, or for us to be Your understanding is pretty good, pretty accurate. Yes. Okay. So, and, and you can uh, look at, prefront, at the prefrontal cortex as a judge, as a decision maker who is weighing uh, what kind of decision is correct based on what kind of information the judge is receiving. And imagine somebody is telling him, telling him oh, we are in danger, we have to run away, we have to stop thinking, we have to immediately take action to escape or something else. That's the information about fear. 
And then somebody else is telling him, okay, let's think we just learned that uh, two times two equals two four and maybe something else. And maybe we heard some music somewhere and maybe somebody told me something. So this is more sophisticated information. And maybe we know about certain events, something should happen. Let's calculate it. Let's think about it. And so the balance between these two flows of information, I'm making it very primitive. I'm probably simplifying it too much, but uh, that's the way to understand it better. So that judge has to make a decision. And if there was a prior experience of animal being shocked, that decision will become more biased towards flow of information about the fear. Okay, so it becomes more biased towards that kind of instinctual, um, instinctual, that basic, instinctual basis. Exactly, but more biased towards basic instincts. Mm. So uh, there was another study that came out just a few days ago, and if you haven't heard of it, feel free to to just say so. But um, that l the study looked at using ketamine in mice as sort of a like a, a vaccine of some kind to try and prevent some PTSD-like symptoms. Um, have you heard of that study? I think it just came out a few oh, days yes. ago. Oh yes, yes, actually, actually. I didn't mention that, but in our initial studies about psychological trauma, uh, the first study where there is a behavioral effect of watching fear, we also used ketamine in that study, and we showed that if we injected ketamine immediately after animal observed another mouse being shocked, the effect of that observation is gone. So ketamine prevents uh, effect of observational fear on subsequent uh, fear learning. Uh, so that's why effects of ketamine are not surprising. Ketamine is known uh, for probably last 15 years as a rapidly acting antidepressant, and it's also known as a strong modulator of uh, neuronal function. It causes actually neuronal growth. Uh, studies by Ronald Duman Laboratory at Yale University show that injecting very low dose of ketamine promotes neurogenesis, uh, and uh, that effect is an opposing effect to adverse effects of stress. So that's why, yes, effects of ketamine are not surprising, and it's worthwhile to study how ketamine works. So I guess the idea there is is potentially, if this turns out to be a, a good solution for people who we know are going into potentially high-risk situations, so combat zones, that kind of thing, that we might be able to preemptively assist them by giving them some kind of ketamine-like vaccine to try and, and prevent some of this these PTSD symptoms from setting in. I would I would rather think about it as administering ketamine after immediately after person had a very bad aversive experience. I would not give ketamine prior to people going into the battlefield. Mm -hmm. But uh, at least based on our study, I would say if person witnessed uh, his friends die or been hurt or participate in very stressful battle, it would be okay to give maybe a little bit of ketamine at the end of the day. And Maybe those bad memories or bad changes in the brain, maybe they would be wiped off or they would not develop. Uh, because what is known about ketamine, ketamine uh, uh, increases brain activity and causes certain pattern of oscillations in the brain. And uh, this could be considered like a massage sort of, massage therapy for the brain, where you wipe off or clean off certain changes or certain processes which otherwise would develop into something really bad. Uh, so that, that's how I view the ketamine effects. Alexi, thank you so much. The research is really fascinating, and uh, I'm definitely going to keep an eye on it. It's been interesting looking thank into this. It was really fun talking with you and your audience. <laughs>
And if you want to learn more about Alexei Morozov or his research, uh, you can find links to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which, as always, you can find on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. You're listening to Science for the People. I'm your host, Rochelle Saunders. With me is psychologist Dr. Monica Williams, the director of the Behavioral Wellness Clinic in Louisville, Kentucky. She's an associate professor at the University of Connecticut and director in the Lab for Culture and Mental Health Disparities. She's a board-certified cognitive behavioral specialist and a licensed psychologist in two states. Monica, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you. It's great to be here. So probably the first place we should start is the definition of PTSD. So in the DSM-5, what is the definition that we get? Right. So PTSD is basically considered a reaction to a very um, frightening experience that we define as a trauma, usually involving you know a threat to somebody's life or well-being. Um, and it's typically been defined as something that happens when um, you know, when we're so frightened that we don't know how to cope with it. Um, and it can involve a, a lot of different kinds of symptoms. And, and sometimes because of the many different symptoms that um, are attached to PTSD, it can be hard to diagnose because it can include um, not just things like flashbacks, but also depression, anxiety, um, social phobia, psychosis, dissociation, and all of those things can be their own disorder. So, um, so PTSD um, can be very disabling because of the severe and varied symptoms. And as I pointed out, hard sometimes to diagnose. So what do we mean when we say trauma in this context? Uh, I mean, there's a specific definition of trauma we work with when we talk about PTSD, correct? Correct. So traditionally, um, in terms of the, the DSM, we've conceptualized trauma as a discrete event. Um, but in actuality, what we're finding is that trauma tends to be cumulative. So, um, so actually most people who experience a trauma do not go on, um, to have PTSD. Usually they recover on their own. And what uh, research has found is that it's really often, um, the third trauma that somebody has or the fourth trauma that they have that pushes them over into, uh, being traumatized in, in the way we think of PTSD. And so, um, so we're really starting to better understand that, uh, that trauma is often about uh, many experiences over a lifetime that have ultimately exhausted a person's ability to, to cope with them. Yeah, I sort of was assuming that experiencing some form of PTSD-like symptoms immediately after a trauma is pretty common. I mean, for instance, after being in a car accident, it seems likely it would be common for the first few times back behind the wheel of a car for someone to feel a lot more anxious about that. Um, what are what differentiates some of the sort of normal ways we process and react after a trauma from kind of a PTSD or something that becomes really problematic? Right. That's a really good example because it is 
very common for people who've had a, a trauma uh, to temporarily have some PTSD-like symptoms. And so we actually have another diagnosis that we use to describe this um, early constellation of symptoms uh, so that it isn't confused with PTSD. Um, it's like acute, acute uh, stress disorder. So, um, so that's very common. I mean, I was, you know, in a car accident once. I remember very clearly feeling jumpy and anxious getting back behind the wheel. But most of us in these situations, we do eventually get back behind the wheel and we essentially face our fear and then eventually the fear goes away. Um, and so, and so that's part of that natural recovery process. Another part of that natural recovery process is talking to people about our experience, processing it, making sense out of it. Um, you know, getting encouragement and support from, um, people who are important to us. All of these things help us recover naturally from a trauma. Um, so, so that's why most people don't go on to, uh, have PTSD because they, they employ those different strategies to get better. So when we're talking about PTSD, is it, is it that different? Is it something that happens that stops us from kind of processing it in this normal way? Yes. So what we find with PTSD is, is that people who are traumatized have not been able to um, engage in this, this process of natural healing for one reason or another. And one of the biggest obstacles to recovery that I see is this sense of shame that has prevented them from being able to talk to other people, get support and make meaning out of the experience. So when you look at the different types of things that traumatize people, uh, sexual assault is near the top. Um, whereas things like natural disasters and car accidents are near the bottom. And that's because in large part that when people are in car accidents or experience natural disasters, they're able to talk to other people about them um, without that same sense of, of shame and stigma that um, may be accompanied with something like a sexual assault. So uh, I've also heard the term complex trauma before. What does that mean? Is that something different? Um, no, actually, it's very similar. I mean, it's basically a way of explaining um, a situation where a person has had ongoing trauma for a long period of time. And the, um, the fallout from that that happens, you know, in terms of a person's life course and, and personality and um, and just a lot of different facets of the person's life that are going to be touched by being traumatized for a long time on an ongoing basis. And you often see this with people who maybe have been victims of uh, childhood abuse. Often that's not a, a one-time thing. That could something, you know, if it's happening from a neighbor or relative, that can happen over a long period of time. So I guess other forms of domestic abuse would fall into this as well, probably. Certainly it could. Um, I, I'm curious, the word trauma is used a lot these days to describe a lot of things, kind of like the word depression or anxiety. I mean, how do we partition out the use of these words and kind of everyday vernacular from the occurrence of these in a clinical sense? What's the difference? Sure. So, so you're absolutely right. People may use the term trauma colloquially to just refer to something really bad or stressful that happened to them. But what is different about um, having a diagnosis of, of PTSD and being traumatized in that sense is that there's a very specific constellation of symptoms that we're looking for in several different categories. And so uh, PTSD will include, you know, what we might term as avoidance symptoms. So that could be things like um, avoiding things that remind you of the trauma, avoiding places that remind a person of the trauma, trying to avoid memories or thoughts about the trauma, 
Um, other symptoms are things that we might uh, term as hyperarousal. So that means being exceptionally vigilant for danger. And so that could um, uh, manifest as being very jumpy. So if someone taps you from behind, you like jump out of your skin or um, not being able to sleep because you're constantly on alert for danger. Um, and and so there, there are these sort of specific symptoms that we're looking for when we make a diagnosis. And, um, and so it's usually fairly clear if somebody has these symptoms um, and, and we can make a diagnosis. So when you're looking to diagnose PTSD, are you looking for a number of these symptoms to be manifesting all together? Uh, or is it a situation of just one or two can indicate PTSD is present? Um, generally, you have to have symptoms in each category. So um, you'd have to have some avoidance, uh, hyperarousal. You'd have to have some symptoms of re-experiencing the trauma. And these could be flashbacks, but they could also be things like bad dreams or intrusive thoughts. And then, um, and then now one category we also are looking at is, um, you know, um, what we might think of as, um, negative thoughts, uh, for example, um, distorted ideas about the world, like, you know, the world will never be a safe place for me or, or, um, negative thoughts about a person as a result of the trauma, like I can't do anything right. And I can't cope with stressful situations. Um, so, so we're looking for symptoms in all of those areas to make a diagnosis. So do we know what happens in the brain of someone with PTSD? Say if we put someone in an MRI or something like that, would we be able to see differences in the brain? Is this like a, a physical thing that happens? Um, there absolutely are differences in um, the brains of people who've had trauma. And in fact, there's a lot of exciting and new research that people are doing looking at these things. Um, the, the issue is it's not necessarily clear how helpful this knowledge is because, I mean, we know that PTSD is happening in the brain because, well, everything happens in the brain. So. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not necessarily clear that if we know what areas of the brain are affected that we could go in and fix them. We're pretty far from being able to do that. Is, there, is this helpful? knowing that it's a physical change to reduce the amount of stigma that people might feel if they know it's something that's physically happening in their brain versus just uh, feeling like they can't cope and they should be able to? Oh, absolutely. I think it can definitely be helpful for that. You know, just like if you break your leg, you can go uh, to the emergency room and they'll take an x-ray and they'll show you your broken leg. Um, and that, you know, gives you a little bit of uh, confirmation as to why you feel so badly. Likewise, I think it could be very helpful to know that, um, you know, that there are there are some, you know, visible markers of, of trauma that, that we can detect in the brain. So what's the, the range of PTSD severity? I assume that there's a wide range of how PTSD can impact and manifest in somebody's life. Yes, there are a lot of different ways, as I was mentioning before. I mean, for example, somebody um, who's been traumatized, if they've been held up at gunpoint, they might be afraid to leave their home. Uh, because they might, you know, run into somebody else who might do the same. Uh, whereas if somebody was traumatized in the workplace, they, you know, they may be fearful of, of going to work. So, so it could, it could differ in that way. So are the, are the different symptoms of PTSD uh, more likely to manifest from different types of traumas? I'm thinking, for example, are the symptoms of a young woman with PTSD who has experienced a sexual assault likely to be very a different set than those seen in a, in a war vet who has PTSD from participating in combat? 
Well, I think, you know, the basic symptom categories are going to be the same, but the specifics of the symptoms are going to differ. So someone who's um, been subjected to a sexual assault, uh, the young woman, may he, she may be afraid of just being around young males because that reminds her of her attacker. Whereas uh, somebody who's been in combat, they may be uh, vigilant for things like garbage on the side of the road that they worry could be a bomb. So the the, the specific content of the fears um, can be very different. But yet both people may have trouble sleeping, but one may have nightmares about being attacked and the other might have nightmares about being in Iraq. So there is definitely some work that has to be done about looking at the exact symptoms that are causing problems in someone's life and trying to uh, figure out which categories those fall into, I guess. Um. Yeah, I would say so, but it's generally it's generally not too difficult to um, you know divide up the symptoms into the into the necessary categories. You know, if you have have some experience working with people who are traumatized. So I do want to talk about this idea that we mentioned before about PTSD being something that happens after a, a trauma, and we usually think of that as something like an event, a single event that has happened in our lives. But you talked a little bit about how we're seeing this is not necessarily the case as as a series of things can kind of tip us over into into feeling or experiencing a trauma. And in particular, um, you've talked before in, in articles and interviews about how um, racism and systematic racism can really uh, cause PTSD in a way that I think most people find a little unfamiliar from the definitions we've seen of PTSD in the past. So can you unpack that a little bit for us? Sure. So traditionally, you know, we, we've thought of a, a traumatizing event as something that's life-threatening. Um, whereas, you know, my experience has been that racism can be a cause of uh, PTSD. So, you know, people don't typically think of racism as something that's life-threatening unless, you know, you've got uh, people threatening you or, or burning crosses on your lawn, running around in white sheets. Obviously, something like that could potentially be traumatizing. But of course, we don't see a whole lot of that anymore. Most most racism tends to be more subtle. And so um, people sometimes have a hard time understanding how racism can be traumatizing. And so what I, what I like to do is sort of go back to the idea, again, that it's not usually one thing that traumatizes a person. It can be um, a lifetime of bad experiences that um, and eventually you, you have the, the straw that breaks the camel's back and the person becomes traumatized. And it could be a, a big uh, thing that, that triggers it or a small thing. Um, but it's sort of the accumulation of experiences that that leads to being traumatized. And so, um, so for example, and people find it easier to understand if, if I give examples of other sorts of things that are more clearly traumatizing. Uh, for example, sexual harassment. Um, if a person is subject to sexual harassment on the job, it's not usually one sexual remark that traumatizes them, but it's having to deal with this for months or even years um, that can be traumatizing. And in the same way, you know, you may see things like um, kids who get bullied uh, becoming traumatized. And usually, again, it isn't because they were bullied once or teased once. That happens to most kids, but rather that they're bullied and teased um, a lot over a period of time that it gets to the point where they can't they can't cope anymore. When thinking about an idea like race-based discrimination causing trauma, I mean, how do we differentiate or, or draw a line and probably a fuzzy line between an increased amount of anxiety, um, even a clinical problematic type of anxiety and PTSD specifically, or is there a lot of crossover there? 
Well, I think that um, experiencing racism could actually result in, in different kinds of psychopathology. Um, but, but I have certainly seen um, very clear PTSD symptoms resulting from racism. And again, we're looking for those symptoms in those uh, four categories. And, you know, and when somebody's having strong symptoms in, in all categories and they're disabled, you know, I'm not going to say, no, you weren't traumatized because uh, what happened to you doesn't fit the definition that's in this um, this big uh, Eurocentric book <laughs> about uh, psychopathology. I'm going to say, no, you're traumatized. Let's figure out how that happened. It's interesting that you bring that up because I wanted to, to talk a little bit about the historical context of the definitions and diagnoses in the DSM-5. As you say, it comes from a, a background of mostly white mostly Eurocentric uh, people doing scientific work and doing clinical work with quite often a mostly white, mostly European-based set of people. So how do, like, I'm assuming that this is somewhat pervasive in the DSM-5, because it seems like the idea that something like PTSD being caused or can be caused by racial discrimination um, is something that's that's pretty new into our idea set for this. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing to remember is that most of, you know, our conceptualizations of mental illness are sort of based in these Western models um, that were developed from observing mostly white people um, and most mostly mental health practitioners who are also white. And they bring with them their cultural perspective um, on those disorders. And so everyone likes to think and hope that these are universals. But in fact, um, many aspects of psychopathology are, are cultural. And so, um, so it's really important that we consider that when we're, when we're looking, you know, when we're looking at psychopathology. Um, and a lot of these cultural concepts have not yet worked their way into the DSM. And, you know, there's you know, a little appendix in the back, you know, called cultural concepts of distress. But these, these, uh, illnesses in, in this little tiny section, um, actually uh, afflict a large number of people worldwide. And because we don't understand them or don't see them or we don't see them in the same way, in, you know, in, in our American or European samples, um, it's easy to uh, ignore them and think they don't exist. So, so on that note, there are many facets of mental illness and psychopathology that, that we don't necessarily fully appreciate because we're looking, looking through this, this Eurocentric lens. I can see how that lens would be problematic with patients and clinicians, especially if someone is black and is feeling traumatized by some of the discrimination and racism that they experience in their everyday life, talk, trying to talk and express these feelings to their white therapist. I can see how that could cause a, a lot of problems. There's a big cultural gap there and it potentially could be very large depending on the cultural experience and, and biases of the clinician as well. Um, absolutely. So it's going to be very important that someone who's traumatized be able to process their experiences in a, in a safe um, environment. And so somebody who's been um, traumatized as a result of, of racism, if they go to a therapist and want to talk about um, what they experienced, it's going to be difficult if the therapist doesn't even really understand or believe in racism. I mean, in fact, I saw a poll recently that says that showed that most white Americans that slightly over half believe that racism against white people is just as big of a problem as racism about against black people, which is absolutely absurd. Um, so, you know, if you have a therapist who is thinking that it's going to be hard for them to appreciate or empathize um, what they're 
racially traumatized client is going through. So um, is that starting to change? I mean, are we starting to take the experiences of a wider diversity of people into account when as we're creating the next version of the DSM? I assume the DSM-6 will come at some point in the future? Well, the DSM is um, built largely around uh, the research base. And so in order to, I don't know, justify uh, changes in it, we have to have research behind, um, you know, behind sort of the things that we're that we're wanting to advance. And unfortunately, um, ethnic minority research is lagging far behind um, other areas of inquiry. Now, we do have some research in the last 15 to 20 years that shows um, that shows a lot of very negative mental health consequences um, as a result of racism and discrimination. But that body of work is relatively new compared to other areas. And so I think that I'm hoping that by the time um, DSM-6 rolls around, we do have enough research that, um, that the other folks who are putting it together are going to think, okay, this is credible enough that we need to include it. But it's um, incumbent on on people like me to do the research so that um, we can make a strong case for it. Within the scientific community and the clinical community, is there pushback to the idea that something like systematic racism can cause trauma that would then uh, prompt something like PTSD? Is that a controversial idea in the communities now? Or is it pretty much accepted or people open to that idea? Um, I think people are open to that idea, particularly people who study trauma. Um, that being said, I mean, I have run into a number of, of other people in mental health who were confused by the idea. Not so many people said, oh, that's impossible, but definitely, um, definitely some confusion, I'll, <laughs> I'll say. So are, you mentioned that some people are more or less likely to develop PTSD after trauma. Are, are there known risk factors for PTSD? Sure, there are there are a number of of known risk factors, um, and certainly one of the things we see is that um, interpersonal types of traumatization are more likely again to to cause PTSD. Um, and then also, as I said before, the more traumas you've had in the past, the more likely you are to have it. Um, we do know that different um, ethnic minority groups are at higher risk of. PTSD than white Americans. And, um, and again, that's one of those, um, you know, one of, one of those differences that I think can be explained at least in part by racism. Um, although there, there are other explanations as well. And then, and then on top of, um, you know, traumatic events, I think it's also important to consider the role of things like historical trauma and cultural trauma and community trauma, as these also contribute to the, the overall level of traumatization that's experienced by an individual. And so, um, and so those are, those are some facets that people haven't really paid a lot of attention to in the past that, that now um, a lot of researchers are saying, Hey, we have to, we have to consider this as well. When you mentioned, uh, earlier in that in- interrelational trauma. Can you mm-hmm. uh, define that? I'm not sure I know exactly what that means. Right. That just means trauma involving other people like, um, you know, being traumatized, um, you know, like, for example, being uh, domestic violence where you may be traumatized uh, by a significant other or um, something like a assault from another person or rape. Um Traumas involving other people, and and racism is a kind of trauma that almost always involves other people. So, um, so again, that that makes that type of trauma particularly, um, you know, per- particular particularly um, concerning as a as a way of becoming traumatized. And another thing is when someone is 
experiences racism, it's often a, they're often embarrassed by it. They often feel ashamed about it. Um, you know, they don't want to go around and tell everyone, hey, I've been discriminated against. Um, contrary to what people might believe, most people who experience these things uh, don't really want to talk about it because it's painful and, and embarrassing. And they may tell other people even in their own ethnic group and people may say well hey I experienced that too you just got to suck it up or they may um, talk to people outside their ethnic group who don't understand or don't believe it and so um, that might contribute to them feeling like there's there's no place where they can go and get support for what happened to them. Which is I think one of the most difficult parts about combating racism or, or dealing with it on a personal level is the shame that be- gets associated with it, even though it, there really shouldn't be any shame about being treated in a way that is not cool. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's just like, you know, the shame someone might feel from having been raped. It's like, you know, it's not the victim's fault that they were raped. But as soon as someone says that immediately people are judging and they're looking for reasons and they're saying, well, you shouldn't have been out late or you shouldn't have worn a, a skirt that was that short or you shouldn't have, you know, gone with that guy to the bar. And, you know, and it's so unfair to um, place all the all the blame on um, the person who was victimized rather than looking at the real source of it, which is the perpetrator. So for someone who's diagnosed with PTSD, what's the treatment protocol? What's the first step? Right. Well, there's some really, one of the nice things about PTSD is actually there are a number of effective treatments for it. Uh, the first step would be to get a good um, assessment and diagnosis by somebody who specializes in um, PTSD. And then I would recommend um, an evidence-based treatment for it. And so the most effective treatments for PTSD um, have a large exposure component to them which means that um, the people are confronting the things that they're afraid of. Um, and, and generally, research shows that, uh, that PTSD is very treatable with very high success rates if people stay in treatment. And that tends to be the, the tricky thing is that uh, these exposure-based treatments can be very aversive and people often drop out of treatment um, and don't get better. So what types of treatments are evidence-based for PTSD? Um, well, one type of treatment that um, has one of the largest bases of evidence behind it is prolonged exposure. That was a, a treatment developed by um, Dr. Edna Foa and, and colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, other kinds of empirically supported treatments include cognitive processing therapy, which has a lot of um, very similar techniques to prolonged exposure. Um, then there are some other treatments like um, EMDR, which has some evidence behind it, although it's a bit controversial and doesn't um, and isn't clear that it's as effective as um, as the other two treatments that I mentioned. Um, and then sometimes people also take medication, which generally is not a cure for PTSD, but can help um, relieve some of the symptoms. So the drug protocols would be to help people kind of deal with some of the immediate symptoms so that they can more effectively kind of go through the therapy process. Right. That would be the ideal use of medication. I'm curious, um, because you use the word evidence-based, that also implies that there are some non-evidence-based treatments out there. Would you care to talk about any of those or uh, list any of them for people who might be looking to get treatment for their PTSD and trying to sort out what's evidence-based and what's not? Sure. I mean, things like um, relaxation techniques, um, you know, that's not really been shown to necessarily be helpful. Also, therapy that uh, doesn't involve talking about your trauma. 
uh, that's not going to help too much. Um, and then there's sort of some therapies that are in between that may or may not be helpful. I mean, supportive therapy and, and, um, and some general counseling can be helpful if it includes, um, you know, really talking about the trauma in a, in a way that um, is helping the person um, process it, think about it differently. That's going to be helpful. But if it's just, um, you know, saying, hey, I had this trauma happen to me uh, and maybe coping with some of the fallout of that trauma in the person's life, it's not going to it's probably not going to be very helpful in terms of, um, you know, reducing their their PTSD symptoms in the long run. I know some people who are really resistant to the idea of talk therapy. So can you talk a little bit about talk therapy, what it can do and what evidence exists to support its use and, and why talk therapy is so important? Well, well, it's kind of hard because when people use the, you know, say talk therapy, that could mean a couple different things. So, so we'll have to, to clarify what you mean because uh, some people use the term talk therapy to talk about any any kind of uh, psychotherapy that involves talking, and then sometimes that refers to really more the supportive counseling kind of therapy. So, so I guess then the question that I should ask is why is talking about a trauma so important? to getting past it? Okay, yes, I can answer that question. Um, so talking about it is really important because um, because it's one way of, number one, facing your fear. Oftentimes people who've been traumatized are afraid that if they think about it or talk about it, they're going to fall apart and not be able to cope. And so what talking about it shows them is that, yes, they can talk about it and they can think about it and they're going to feel a little bad in the short term, but they're going to be okay. And so it kind of helps disconfirm that um, fear that talking about it and thinking about it is just as bad as the actual trauma because talking and thinking about it is a completely safe activity. The trauma was dangerous, but recounting it is not. And so um, it's really important that people learn that distinction who have been traumatized. Um, and the other thing that talking can do is it can help um, the person think about the trauma differently. So often when people who've been traumatized are thinking about how they've been, the fact that they've been traumatized, they're often beating themselves up, uh, ruminating on things that they imagine they did wrong or why it was their fault. And often getting a, a new perspective on the trauma can really help them see uh, that all these things they're, they're beating themselves up over actually didn't happen, um, that they actually did their best in a really scary situation. And learning to appreciate that can go a very long way toward recovery. And then also finally this, this piece involving shame where the person feels defective because either they allowed themselves to be traumatized or they were the victims of trauma. Having another supportive person like a therapist be able to uh, reflect back to them that, you know, there's nothing shameful about what they went through. And in fact, um, being able to reframe that in terms of the person's bravery and, and ability to survive a difficult situation, um, all of those things can um, really help shift the perspective to help move them out of that that place of, of shame and self-blame to a place where, where they feel um, empowered um, uh, after after treatment. I want to talk a little bit about um, sexual trauma and how that manifests, yeah. because I think there's a lot of myths in our culture about what a victim of sexual trauma acts like or what they're supposed to act like. So can you unpack that a little? Because I feel like especially in a world where there are sexual assaults or rapes trying to be prosecuted that get a lot of high profile media coverage, we get this bounce back of people saying, well, clearly they're lying because someone who really experienced sexual assault wouldn't do this or wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I hate I hate it when people say things like that, because you know what, nobody knows what they are going to do when they are traumatized. You know, um, I mean, somebody who says that they could be raped tomorrow and not at all react like they thought they were going to react. <laughs> it's it's awful to be traumatized. And people who um, experience sexual assault, some of them are going to um, react in a way that uh, sort of fits with our schema of how people who are raped are supposed to act. They maybe uh, cry, upset, call the police, file charges, you know, get support from their girlfriends, go to the hospital and do the rape kit thing. Um, you know, and, and if they do that, that's, that's one very, you know, acceptable way of responding. But some people are going to be so shocked, they're not going to tell anybody. Um, other, you know, they may clam up and be numb and withdraw. Um, and then frankly, what we know about what happens when people who rape are reported, uh, most of those people um, are not convicted. Uh, they don't spend any time in jail. And in fact, it ends up being much more stressful for the victim who has to go to court and recount her story to um, a, a potentially hostile audience, a, a, an attorney who's going to pick it apart and find a way to turn it all on her and blame her for what happened. It makes a lot of sense. A lot of times victims say, you know what, I don't want to go through that. I can't go through that. It's too much for me. Um, and so then, you know, people might assume, well, she didn't file charges or she didn't report it to the police. Therefore, um, she must have she must have wanted it. It's that's completely absurd. There was a, a fairly famous and very well publicized case in Canada um, where a public figure was accused of sexual assault, several sexual assaults. And one of the defenses was that to one of the women, well, you continued to correspond with this person over Facebook. Um, mm -hmm. And that kind of. Of, of defense was used as a, well, clearly you weren't that traumatized or clearly it wasn't that bad or it was an assault if you were still able to interact with this person, if you were willing to send them a Facebook message afterwards. Um, where does that sit in kind of the, the normalcy of response to something like a, a sexual assault? Not abnormal at all. If somebody that you cared about and trusted assaults you, it may take you a little while to figure out what just happened because because uh, there's like a huge conflict in your head, right? This is somebody that maybe you trusted or you cared about, and they did something that was really hurtful and betrayed you. And and it can be very hard to reconcile those two things. Um, and, and the fact of the matter is most people are not all good or all bad. They're somewhere in between. And for some reason, we, you know, we think that we, you know, have to make a decision and uh, <laughs> someone's all good or all bad. But, but trying to deal with that conflict can sometimes take time. And, um, like I said, particularly if that person who did that assault is someone who's known to you. I mean, often we see this with children. They're sexually abused or physically abused by a parent, but they love that parent. And so, um, because that's what they know. And, and so they may not want that parent to be punished or, or go to jail, um, because, you know, they have these conflicting and confusing feelings. And I would expect as well, if there's a situation where this is maybe you've been assaulted by someone that, that you work with, uh, or that has the ability to influence your career in major ways, that you would have a personal motivation to either keep that quiet or to continue to interact with that person in at least a civil manner uh, in order to make sure that you don't get fired, to make sure that your career has the best head start, and that those would all be sort of 
considerations around the power in the situation as well, which would, would cause you to maybe act in certain ways that you might not if it was a stranger or you might not if it was just a friend. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If, if this, if something like this happens to somebody and it's, a, you know, in a situation where the other person has power over you, you have to really think carefully and strategically about what your next steps are going to be because that person can retaliate against you and that might cost you your job um, and um, your reputation and your your social network. Uh, there could be a lot of, of, of very bad consequences. And so um, so that's often a very unfortunate and, and awful um, place that, that a lot of women get stuck in when um, somebody over them, um, you know, does something does something uh, horrible like this. And usually, the, the sad fact is that uh, those those people in those powerful positions are often not punished for for what they've done. And so it's really um, really a losing game for the person who's been victimized to draw attention to the problem because. Um, again, in most circumstances, the the victim is going to be punished. Uh, everybody in the workplace is going to turn on the um, the victim for um, blowing the whistle, <clears throat> and you know, and that that person is going it may be further traumatized by the fallout of that. Yeah, there's definitely if there's a, a large public fallout that often includes a lot of shaming practices, which I can see would just feed into that already existing shame that's probably there and cause a lot of extra problems. So I can see how someone would completely validly want to avoid that. Yeah. So just one last question before we sign off. I'm curious, what are the major kind of underlying questions about PTSD and how we deal with or uh, recover from trauma happening in the scientific and clinical discourse today? Kind of what are the biggest open questions that people are investigating? Right. Well, I think one of the biggest questions is, you know, most people who do stay in treatment get better, but there's some who don't. How do we help those people who, who don't get better even with uh, even even though they may uh, do their best with these empirically supported treatments, I think that's one question. Another question is um, how do we engage people in treatment who are so afraid of the traumatic thoughts and memories that they they won't even come to therapy or they they come once and then they don't come back. I I would say most of the people who call my clinic uh, with PTSD they call and half of them don't show up for their first appointment and then the half who do show up for their first appointment don't show up for their second appointment. Oh wow! So um, so it's very hard to to get people engaged in treatment and and um and I always I, I always think I wish you you knew how effective this could be and how wonderful you'll feel afterwards. Um, but it's hard treatment. And it's, you know, it can be agonizing at the, on the front end to confront those really scary thoughts that a person has been avoiding sometimes for years and years. And so, so those are some some big questions. Of course, there's always research into our, can we come up with more effective medications for it? And and actually, I'm involved right now in a, in a study looking at some um, new treatments for um you know, for treatment-resistant PTSD that involve a combination of of medication and therapy um, that really hasn't been done before as a way of of accelerating treatment. It's a bit controversial because it involves the drug MDMA. Um, ah, yes, but- we uh, we've talked to um, Brad at Maps before about uh, MDMA and some of the work Maps is doing to try and and run some trials on that. Oh, exactly. So, uh, so you've already heard about it, but, yeah. um, but I'm hoping that, um, here at, at the University of Connecticut, where I'm at now, we can be part of those phase three trials to help, um, improve the diversity of the study because, 
it has been um, mostly white people who've been getting the treatment. And um, it's going to be really important to show that this treatment is is effective in um, minority groups and people of color as well. Monica, thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate you sharing it with us today. Oh, you're very welcome. It was great being here. If you want to learn more about Dr. Monica Williams, her work, or PTSD, we've got some links to get you started on the show notes for this episode, which you can find, as always, on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 